0: You can tell by the looks on their faces as they go scurrying through the rain. Maybe we pushed it too far this time. Maybe we have pushed it too far this time. And finally, that gigantic, that tremendous sledge, that hammer, is going to come right out of a clump. Boom! New York is gone. <laughs> you know, it, it's a fascinating thing for an outlander, for someone who lives way yeah, an outlander. To observe what New York does during the slightest indication that weather might be glowering just a little bit. Could it be possible that New York has a fantastic case of conscience? That New York's great abstract life—you know—we're constantly writing about New York, talking about New York, writing how it feels to live in New York, and people like uh, oh, people like uh, Truman Capote, people like. Uh, What's this guy from the Times? People like, what's this guy from Esquire? What's this guy from Playboy? All these people are writing constantly about the mystique of New York. And, of course, it has become increasingly abstract. More and more, New York life bears a relationship to no other life. It is New York life. There are people who are alive, you know, way out there, wandering around the hills and bumping into each other in Chillicothe, way out there in the dark fastnesses of... Well, for want of a better word, the outer darkness, out there in the boondocks, I might use a better known phrase, way out there in the, oh, you know, and, and here we are. We're all gathered together, huddled here, if you please, in New York, and somehow we have gotten the ingrown feeling of a faculty. You know, you know what the, what, what faculty life is like in a in a college that's way off in the hills, someplace up, let's say, out in or Princeton or Dartmouth or somewhere. The, the ingrown life of the faculty is an interesting thing, very interesting thing to observe. It grows it grows kind of... Well, it's, it's ingrown. It's, it's like this toe within a sock, within a shoe, within an overshoe, within a drift of snow. And it's all by itself. It has no context that lives beyond the context of its own little leaves and its own files. It has no real contact with the outside world. Once in a while, a new group of students will come in, and they will absorb those students. But the students are always on the periphery, just as the tourist is on the periphery here in Manhattan. He comes, he goes. For a while, he sings and dances with us, but never is part of us. And then he departs, but we stay. We are the faculty of New York. And as we grow more and more ingrown, we become more and more insular. We have our own mores, our own mode of operation, and so we write our own literature. We, of course, and I'm not even speaking of Damon Runyon, who did not, who never wrote, as far as I'm concerned, the literature of New York. Uh, Runyon wrote Runyonese, uh, but nevertheless, we have our own. We have our own literature. It, it pours out of the the news. It pours out of the the indignant. Pulp pages of the Post, always angry about things which. <laughs> ah! And then you have the good, calm, vaguely fuzzy voice of the New York Times ponderously moving along a concrete highway that's a circular highway, of course. And we have our own literature. We're our own mores, our own world, our own way of being. That the, let's say, the mystique of Horn and Hardart is always and will forever be lost on. The, the the tourist, the man from Cleveland. I I know you know the man from Cleveland comes. Look oh, at you with the nickels. You Oh, it's well, always what I heard about the the, the 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 automat, you know. But it isn't the automat. You hardly ever hear it called the automat to people living in New York. It's something else. But here is here is this this mystique growing. It's a it's a it's an inner circle. And once in a while, you see, this is where we get to the point of this. Thing here Now sit up straight, will you? I mean, just because it's Saturday, sit up. Sit up. I'm awfully tired. This whole miserable business. I mean, you're getting a crimp. I'm getting a crimp. We're all crimped. And so we sit here in this little, this circle, this sewing circle that is Manhattan. And once in a while from the outer world will come the slight... Suggestion of a wind. What was that? We turn and look over our shoulders. Or maybe a little rain will come down broad. What's this wet stuff? Of course, we're used to wet stuff. I was over on, on the east side the other day in the 60s. Let me tell you. Have you ever pulled up, say, about 2 o'clock in the morning in the 60s somewhere in the east side over on 2nd? Over there in Tristville, you know? Where all these big new fancy apartments have gone up, and all these great big fancy balconies are out looking out over the river. Oh, this is this is expensiveville. This is ex- this is expense accountville. If I ever saw it. See, and it's over there. You pull up about two o'clock in the morning, and you get out of a cab, or you get. A, oh, incidentally, only cabs are fitting in that neighborhood. There, it's the transient world, you know. And, and do you have, have you ever had the feeling that you're going to go to hell in a cab? <laughs> You know, <laughs> paying the fare and the meter's ticking all the way, and and so you get out of a cab. I, I did this just just the other night. I get out of a cab over there in the East 60s. It's two o'clock in the morning, and I hear this, <sharp inhale> and it's it's all around me. Not a soul is stirring. Not even a mouse. <sharp inhale> and there's a, there's a faint moisture in the air. <sharp inhale> And, and I had just left the west side where all was pristine and calm and quiet. And I couldn't figure out what it was. I thought, is it the river flowing past? What is it? And then it dawned on me. It was Air Conditionerville. And the whole world there was air conditioned. <sharp inhale> and I looked up, and all these sleeping apartments you could hear humming. It's a frightening thing, really. <laughs> It really is. You can hear it. It's getting more and more. At three o'clock in the morning, all the apartments go. And once in a while, you, you hear the little metal flaps of the of the what are they? Little ventilators on the side of these things. And then you'll hear a rattly old air conditioner that's about nine years old somewhere, or some guy hasn't quite made it up there on the seventh floor and he's in a rent-controlled apartment, and they'll get him out before the first of the year. You know it. And, sh- and they're all spitting this little, this little moisture, spitting it out at you. You stand there in the middle of the street, and you begin, really, you begin to realize that you are now living in the contained, transistorized, good life of the 20th century, that these, these are the truly insular people. We, in, in, in New York, we like to think that out in the Midwest, they are isolationist. Oh, oh. Oh, you have no idea how isolationist New York is. It's even isolationist about New Jersey, fifteen feet away. And we're living in this little faculty, all of us together. And once in a while there'll be this little breeze come down the street, and somebody will say, Whoa, well, what was that? And the guy next to him said, that was a wind, I think. Wind. 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 Wind, wind, wind. wind. And then ten minutes later, there will be an extra large drop will come down. What what was that? Somebody's air conditioner? That's, That's rain. And within five minutes, all over the dial, you hear nothing but a constant hullabaloo. Television, radio, all they're talking about is this thing that came from the outside world, this rain. Have you listened to the newscast today? This piddling little rain we're getting here. This miserable little rain. And, and I'm, I'm listening to the newscast. 15 minutes of time, and on 46th Street, there were over 2 inches of water, and on 23rd Street, there were 7 inches of water, and 14 old ladies had to get out of their car, and, oh, it was terrible, oh, it's so awful here, you have no idea what it is, and, ladies and gentlemen, the barometer is going up and down and sideways, and the multiple, and it goes, you see, and it sounds like a fantastic disaster has hit Manhattan. What it is, is the outside world has hit Manhattan, which is a disaster in itself. (laughs) <laughs> and we are becoming aware of something, you see, that out there is that world. And it goes on and on and on like this in this little faculty world. You know how, the, how a faculty is. I'll give you a little insight into the faculty world. That the slightest little ripple causes gigantic waves because the, they've got nothing else to do, you know. They're all sitting around there on their duffs all looking at each other suspiciously all waiting for somebody to move into the department that that sharp young man from Dartmouth who wrote that monograph that idiotic thing that you know that and and they're all waiting for 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 this this thing to happen just as we are in our wonderful little insular world here and it it uh, it's fascinating to me coming coming from have you ever seen what kind of rains they get in Omaha oh buddy <laughs> Have you ever seen every 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 three weeks in in the winter in in Circleville, Ohio, the snow suddenly is up to the roofs and and during the summertime, plagues of locusts one after the other, gigantic thundering tornadoes i <laughs> I remember a tornado that went right through a little town in Michigan and ten minutes after it went through knocked down seventeen houses, nobody said anything about it. I don't know what they would do in New York if a tornado ever struck Times Square. I mean, it would be the biggest thing. We would be talking about it till well into January. It fantastic. And the only point that I'm making here is that most of the decisions about that outside world are, re- are made right here in this little insular world. Along Madison Avenue and Lexington, there are thousands of guys who are sitting there figuring out what to say to the people in Circleville, Ohio, to make them feel even more insecure. And they're sitting out there stolidly in Circleville. The tornado goes past, and after a while, they can hear the buzzing of the locust wings. They can hear the chewing of the cutworm out on the tomato vines. And he knows about the real world out there. And we, we here, you know, we live in this wonderful, soft, warm we're all sitting you know, I had this feeling there's a funny feeling about this. I just got back, uh, from a cruiser, from a, a missile cruiser. And we're sailing hundred and fifty or two hundred miles way out into the into the Atlantic. We took off from Boston and we went out into that darkness, that, that eternal sea out there and you see the porpoises rising and falling, and you can see a whale blowing way off the starboard bow, and then night falls until finally there's nothing but that that dark inverted bowl, that eternal night. And let me tell you, I'm standing up there on the flying bridge, and I can see nothing but darkness. Billions and billions and billions of skies, all, all as far as one can see, and all the stars that you could ever imagine. And the ship is cutting through that black water at about 30 knots, you can hear an occasional banging somewhere, down, way down in the hole of this thing, or a creaking sound. Not a single light going... We're cutting through that water. You can feel the spray. And, and it's, a, it's a strange feeling. You see, I don't know which is the real world, this world of the ship, which is as, as insular as anything you can imagine, or that crazy world that I have just left. And as the ship comes steaming back, and slowly I'm getting drawn into this, I can hear the cacophony rising. You can hear the, the trumpeting and the bellowing and the booming and the crashing and the banging and the shrieking and the wailing and the moaning, rising from the eternal, the, the eternal squadrons of the damned as I move back into Manhattan. And I'm once again in this fantastic, strange, whirling vortex, the whirlpool. I remember this, this story about... Now, I don't know which is the real world, you say We're scuttering out there in the darkness, and there's nothing but sky and water. And this this steel hulk, speaking of hulks, this is W O R A M and F M new york Speaking of hulks, as Long John would say, it's time to take care of a bit of business. Filter... Now, can you tell me which is the real world? Would you, before you put that away, Jimmy, just just, just one second here. Now, we're talking about the real world. Now, Now, hold it there for a second. I'll give you the cue. Now, remember this. I am standing on the flying bridge... ...of a steel-gray cruiser, like a long, like a long, sullen greyhound... ...cutting through that black sea of the Atlantic, rising and falling, rising and falling... ...eternally the way it's risen and fallen, up and down, rising and falling and reaching. Oh, yes, reaching, always reaching, always reaching. Joseph Conrad, you know, I'm standing on the bridge of this thing... ...looking down at that black water and it's scuttling past us at 30, 32 knots... Something like that. And and I'm I'm looking at this water and I realize that if, if I ever if I ever somehow was washed overboard or if I was walking along one of the one of the rails and, and just slipped and skittered under the rail and out, I would be gone forever. There would be no coming back. At this time of night, at this place, and at this very instant in this ocean. We were on the edge of the Labrador Current, and it was bitter icy cold water. And you could feel that, 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 that steely ice pick kind of wind that cut along the side and over the, over the bridge and back over the conning tower and finally out over the fantail. Shh! And you could hear that wind hissing and whistling through those radar dishes just above us. Up and down we're going. I'm looking out over in that water and I can see an occasional white cap kicking up you can hear the sea and i'm thinking about what joseph conrad said conrad said in effect in a short story a magnificent short story no one ever wrote about the sea like conrad with the possible exception of herman melville you know all the all the british writers all the all the european writers wrote more about society the american writers in the early days of american letters dealt almost uh, almost uh, conclusively and, and eternally with those those dark forces that lay just outside the the guttering hiss of the campfire and Melville was one of them but but Conrad a British writer also dealt with the sea and his remark about the sea is that anyone who loves the sea uh, and I'm, I'm wildly paraphrasing him here anyone who loves the sea is crazy it's just the sea does not love the sea knows no passion the sea is purely mechanical Purely and utterly and thoroughly mechanical. It's like, it's like saying, I love this piece of sand. I love this rock, but with a difference. The sea is not only mechanical, but is a killer that rises and falls. And I'm standing on that, on that, that flying bridge and I can feel just the touch of spray and that fantastic darkness and those billion stars above us. And I can see way over somewhere in my mind only way over somewhere, this wild, ca- cacophonic, fantastic, rising and falling, hoopla, brouhaha, roar and pitch and steam of the thing I had just left, New York. That little faculty, that booming, bellowing faculty, of which I have been part of, caught up with, ensnared with, enmeshed by, for so long I can't remember anything else now. And I'm standing on this flying bridge, and I'm looking down at this water, and I realize if I go in that water, there is no more, Ever. And there's a guy standing next to me. He says, did I ever tell you about the time? This guy I knew that was on a British freighter. They were out in the South Seas. We got to talking about falling in the water. He said, it was this guy who was a third mate on a, on a freighter out in the South Seas. He said, I knew the guy. And they had just, they had just left a, an island port and they were heading east. And they were in the darkest, deepest, most shark-ridden part of the, of the Pacific. The water was warm and soupy, but oh, so deadly. And it's, it's four o'clock in the morning, and the third mate is the officer of the day, and he's making his rounds of the deck, just quietly walking around. He gets around to the fantail, and, and there were maybe two or three men awake on this ship. This little old freighter was beating her way. And he looks down over the fantail. He's examining the screws, he's making sure that... he's making a check, he's making sure that everything is working fine, when suddenly the ship took a slight roll when he didn't expect it, and he was pitched right off into that darkness. Over that fan tail, that hissing, steaming, boiling, shark-ridden Pacific water. And he saw nothing but the lights of that ship retreating. He was wearing a white T-shirt, he was wearing a pair of white shorts and a pair of those low-cut gym shoes. That's all he had. He's floating there all by himself in that eternal grave. And he sees, he sees that ship going off into the distance. And he knew, he knew that they wouldn't find out that he was gone until they changed watches. Four hours hence. He knew it. And he knew that when they found this out, they would be four hours away. And he knew that the moment they found it out, they would probably turn around and steam back to where they thought perhaps he might have been lost four hours back, or thereabouts. So hence he had a minimum of eight hours to float in that deserted sea on one of the lesser-used, way-off-the-beaten-track, little-known sea routes. It would be as if you're lost on a gravel road a thousand miles away from the turnpike. Don't expect them to come and find you here. And so he lay on his back and looked up at the stars and just lay there. He knew that it was eight hours. He set his mind for eight hours and just quietly paddled and tried to stay above water. And that sea heaved. And sure enough, within ten minutes, a shark came nosing around in the darkness you imagine a shark at four o'clock in the morning in the darkness in an unknown sea? And the, the first indication he had of the shark, it was so dark, was that it nuzzled him. Moved up and just went, boom. With that great big leathery nose up against his ribs. Boom. Pup. And he stiffened. And the instant you stiffen when you're trying to float on your back, you sink. Down he went. <sighs> He, he, he relaxed again and floated to the surface. Boom. This thing hit him again. And he lay there. He moved his left hand casually, easily, trying not to, trying not to startle anything, trying not to, to, to tip the boat. And then when he got into position, he just shot out with his foot. Socko. And he kicked the shark between the eyes. Just boom. And the shark moved back and began to circle. And every ten minutes thereafter, the shark would move in and just sort of nuzzle him. He would kick again. And then the shark was joined by a second shark. Until finally, as the rosy fingered dawn was quietly, quietly trickling its fingernails over that eternal grave, he saw that there were at least ten or twelve sharks just circling around looking at it. And the sun began to beat down. And then suddenly, without warning, the sharks disappeared, which was even more frightening. Altogether, they just... Whoosh. It's now about 7 o'clock in the morning. He's looking up at the sky, and he says, Well, they'll find out about it in just about an hour. I've been here three hours now. And he's getting sick. Have you ever bobbed up and down in a rowboat lying on your back, looking up at the sky? Twenty minutes of that and you're getting ready you're getting ready to let go of every meal you've ever had in your life. Every meal you ever had. And he's lying there nauseous and sick, bobbing up and down, bobbing up and down, and the water is beginning to sting him. You lie too long in salt water, and that Pacific salt water is even saltier than the salt water. And you begin to get that that, that crawly feeling on your skin. That feeling is as though death itself is somehow sneaking up on you, and death has a rough skin. Death is rough like mohair. And you lie there, and you look up, and he's looking out, and suddenly he sees this great hulk coming up beside him, an enormous hulk, something black is coming up out of the sea. I'm telling you a true story. And he looks, and it's a turtle. Have you ever seen pictures of these giant Solomon Islands turtles? Here's this enormous sea turtle with great flippers. Now, these things are not carnivorous, really. They're just sort of, you know, they're just sort of like a ward healer. Kind of friendly and a little sneaky and untrusty. But at the same time, big. Oh, they throw their own weight. And this great big turtle just bobbed up next to him and swam slowly over and looked him right in the face raised his old head out of the water and looked at him. And then stuck his head down and bumped him like a great big fat two-ton beach ball. Boom. Down he went in the water again. Now he's really sick. He's got another mouthful of salt water. He bobs up and the turtle just continues to nudge him along a little bit. Like this. And... He, he realizes that three more bumps like this, and he is done. He is done. He is waterlogged. He is soaked. He will not be able to come back. So he hangs onto the side of the turtle's shell so that the turtle can't get around in front of him again. And there are the two of them are out there in that giant eternal ocean, that sea. He's clinging to the side of the turtle. And he realizes now the turtle is giving him a little rest. The turtle is just quietly flapping his flippers and once in a while going, Bleh. You know how turtles do. You know, they have this problem, this, this is a diet problem. I mean, it's an awful, awful bad diet. He's flapping his flippers, and this guy is hanging on to the flippers out there. And by this time, the sharks are back again, but they see now he has a friend. <laughs> and he is clinging to the turtle, and the turtle is just crying. to going, Bleh. Bleh. And once in a while, the turtle submerges a little bit. Bleh. He goes under, looks around, and this guy just quietly flows to the surface like a bobber. And he waits. And the turtle comes back. And this continues for about another hour and a half. And then just as suddenly as it began, they disappeared. Turtle, sharks and all. And that sun began to crack down. It was now about ten o'clock in the morning. He was so sick he couldn't see the sky. He couldn't see the water. He just lay on his back. He's been in the water now for six hours, only on the hope that this ship might come back. Only on the hope, that's all, a very slim one. And he didn't trust the skipper anyway, really. He's a no-good type. And so he lay on his back with that sun beating down, and he began to feel the skin peeling off of his, his forehead and his cheeks. The salt water was working on him. The sun was working on him. And once in a while, he would see high overhead, way, way high overhead, a flight of seabirds. You don't call to the terns. You don't call to the And, and And occasionally, an albatross goes slowly moving across the horizon, and he lay. And sure enough, 20 minutes before the eight hours were up, he sees coming over the horizon a tiny dot. It is his ship. And for the very first moment, he felt a tremendous, overwhelming, completely engulfing panic. He really felt panic. Panic because now he saw. He saw the very glimmerings of something that might save him. He saw that they might not save him, even more possibly, because the sea was a heavy, heaving sea. And if you've ever tried to see a tiny bobbing single head on a sea, yeah, this is, you know, this business of, of, of needles and haystacks is chicken feed and kid stuff. And he's bobbing. And he began to panic. And as he began to panic, he began to struggle. And as he began to struggle, he began to be sicker. And as he began to be sicker, everything began to spin and get blue and green, and he practically passed out just because of the panic. And then he saw that the ship was slowly beginning to come about. They were giving up the search. They had searched for four hours back over that route. They says, no, he's gone. Let's go. We're losing time. And then just at the last instant, believe it or not, somebody, a seaman, walking along the rail who wasn't even on lookout, looked out over the horizon and saw that tiny dot. They put down a boat, and they pulled him out of the water. And the instant they pulled him out of the water, he broke down completely, thoroughly, utterly, and completely. Didn't regain his senses for maybe ten days, three days after they'd been in port. And for weeks after that, he was still out at sea. For weeks after that, he was still getting bumped by turtles and nuzzled by whales. Which is the real world? Which is the real world? I'm out there on the flying bridge and I see that black water scuttering past, and all I can hear is New York in the distance. All I can hear is Ah, New York! This is it! This is the real world! This is what we want to gasoline from. That's the real world. Boy, it's good to be back here where it's real. Woo! Glad to be back. Glad to be with you, folks. I'll award you the brass figliggy with bronze oak leaf palm if you can tell me who it was who said, Granted, we could get together, folks. <laughs> you know, I saw a cartoon speaking of that. You see, the point that, that that we're trying to raise here is that we are living a life of such complete abstraction here in Manhattan. Such complete abstraction that any time anything that even smacks of the real sneaks down Broadway and gets our pants legs wet, there is a fantastic panic that goes through us. What is that out there? Oh, we're pushing it too far. We're pushing it too far. And a giant male fist one day is going to come. Can't you just hear that on the newscast? Ladies and gentlemen, from the W.O.R. newsroom, we just have received reports that an enormous golden chariot was seen 4,000 feet over West Babylon, Long Island, driven by a man wearing a gold helmet, shooting bolts of thunder and lightning from his left hand as he drove his golden steeds in the general direction of Montauk Point. When we get further information, we'll return to this point. Stay tuned for further notes from the WOR newsroom about the Golden Chariot disaster. And now back to the top 40 favorites. Uh, to uh, the the
1: Precisely right I believe gold and
0: crystalline clear ta-da-ta-di-ta-ta-ka-ta-ta-ra-da-da ta-ta-ta-ti-da-da-da-da-da-ba-ba-ra-da-ta-ta Oh it' so wonderful to be back here in the real world. You don't know how good I feel about it. It's good to be back here in the permanent world. You know, uh, speaking of the permanent world, uh, there was this friend of mine who uh, said, You know, when I was young, when I was a kid, he said, when I was a, a, a flaming, idealistic youth, I used to listen to the, to the politicians speak. And incidentally, I'd like to make a point here. I think that one of the prevailing sicknesses that we have is to suspect deeply, thoroughly, and completely the politician. And we have this thing, you know, all the time, people are always a politician. No. They are just us. So don't put... I mean, a politician is just us. And he has no more phoniness in him, and he has no more goodness. He has no more omniscience in him than 90% of the rest of us, poor fellow um, treaders of this yellow brick road in the eternal search for the Emerald City. He's no more phony. He's no... I, I I know a thousand businessmen I wouldn't trust... I wouldn't trust beyond the the site, beyond the next bend, just past the water cooler. And they're the first ones who say, ah, you can't trust a politician. (laughs) I'm sitting there with a cab driver who has just euchred me out of 15 cents change by a neat, quick movement of the palm. He says, ah, you can't trust, I can't trust those politicians. And that phony has been knocking down ever since they took the tax off. (laughs) And, <laughs> all up and down the line <laughs> and, and this friend of mine you know he's he's uh, it's interesting you know how we how we identify or don't identify we, we want somebody made the point in the village voice there i thought it was very well taken i hope that somebody i hope that uh, somebody picks this up uh but that's that's beside the point we'll we'll save that for tomorrow night this friend of mine was we're talking about the the whole thing, and I I'm, I, have, I can't recall any time ever that I have become more deeply embroiled or more involved or more interested, not involved, and unfortunately, I, you know, we're, we're only involved by just sort of standing around, but more interested in what is happening in the world than today. I think we're living in historical times, really historical times. All times are historical, but sometimes are, are, are more than others. Uh, mean more than others. It's just like your daily life. You might have four or five moments in your day that are much more significant than the other moments that have led up to it and that follow it. And I think that we're living in a momentous, truly a momentous period now. There's no question about it. It's been, it's been moving this way for probably 40 years, and now it's it's kind of coming to a climax. And we are in we are battle, and we don't know which way to turn. If you notice that hardly any, any political man, any politician really talks about the fact that hardly anywhere in the world can you find a real friend, that everywhere, every place you look, backs are being turned on us, in spite of the loud assurances to the contrary. Now, this is a, this is a fascinating thing to see. Not so much that backs are being turned on us, because at every point in history there has been a patsy. We're, we're, we're patsy number one right now. And and ten years from now, I'm quite sure that there will be another patsy that the world will turn its back on. Because always, always, man has had to have something to stick pins into to, to somehow give him a sense that the rottenness that's happening in his life is somebody else's fault. We've always have had to have this thing. It's a patsy. We're, we're the patsy now. But have you noticed that hardly anybody really talks about it except in the broadest of generalities because we're living in such an interesting dream world we're living in such a such a fascinating world I was listening to a politician the other day talk incessantly about how many more cars people have today how many more television sets how how many more breezeways what are you people complaining about these professional gloom dealers are constantly he says and he goes on and this is a great leader a great leader And and I I kept hearing the echoes of some guy standing on the side of a a limpid pool in Rome. And he's he's standing up there with his long robes hanging around him, and he's waving his hand in the air, and he's saying, what are you complaining about? What are you talking about? These sore heads are always coming up talking about these barbarians. Look, you had more grapes per capita last year than ever before. More men can afford Three or more Nubian handmaidens today than ever before. What are you complaining about? Under my administration... it And it goes on and on. I keep hearing the echoes of the same thing. Always. (laughs) And this friend of mine is listening to the speeches going on, and he says, you know, when I was young, when I was a kid, by young he means in his teens, in his early 20s, he says, when I was a kid, I used to say, isn't it... Wow, he says, isn't it... Isn't it terrible that these politicians don't believe what they say? I mean, isn't it awful that they don't believe what they say? And he had the, he had the feeling that all this political talk, you know, was just talk. You know, they didn't believe it. And then he says, now I listen, and I say, wouldn't it be awful if they believed it? Isn't it terrible if they really believed this stuff? Oh. <laughs> and so, I mean, it's, it's all part of the, the wonderful dream world in which we're all involved. And hardly any of us, you know, really feel an involvement. We all feel as though we're onlookers. And so we've come to the point now where we have great crowds of comedians, quote, going over the scene who are, who are the, uh, the, the so-called dispassionate onlookers. Who, who, who just, you know. And today, of course, that's the easiest kind of humor. You can take any, any situation, any condition, any man, any moment in any man's life, and since all of us are frail, and since all of us have the inadequacy of the ungodlike, you can make humor of any moment in any man's life. It's a simple, easy process. I remember seeing a cartoon. In fact, it's, it's in the current issue. It's a beautiful cartoon. One of, one of the few really meaningful cartoons that I have seen in, in Esquire in a long time. And it's, it's a full-page cartoon. It's in the August issue. I have cut this out and it is going on my wall of my office, and here it is. It shows the raging fires of hell, the inferno, great roaring flames and dark blackness, and you can see the lost souls sailing out, and and there in the foreground, in the foreground you see a boat crossing the river Styx, and you can see those angry waters. and 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 those those hooded shrouded souls those damned souls weeping and wailing and you see you see this fiend pulling along in the back and sitting in the front sitting up there in the bow is dante looking very looking very cool looking very casual and he's watching he's sitting back and he's looking at those damned souls moving into the eternal darkness and he's sitting back there on his duff, with his legs crossed, and one of the poor one of the poor, blighted, unfortunate is looking at him with a, a harassed face. And Dante with a slight smile is saying, Oh, I, I don't mind it really. I'm 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 only here to gather material for a book. <laughs> Whither goest indeed, O thou mankind? It's like, you know, speaking of of Dante and the Inferno and all, did you read this little news? This is symbolic of our time. We have this great desire to do it. And, And nobody knows why. All of mankind has. And occasionally one poor soul will do it. Listen to this one from San Francisco. San Francisco. Everett Wong, Everett Wong beat the odds on July 6th. His car plunged over Devil's Slide, an ocean bordering cliff south of San Francisco where many a motorist has been killed in the past. Wong's car rolled over and over and over for 170 feet and ended in a crumbled, smashed mass of metal, a terrible, misshapen heap. But Wong painfully crawled out alive. He should have been killed. An officer at the scene said, I've never seen anything like it. Wong's wife, Alice, noted that he became despondent immediately after the accident. Monday, the body of the 36-year-old real estate man was found in a cement courtyard below his apartment. To gain death, he had cheated. Wong had jumped 35 feet, hopping over his air conditioner as he left. Over WOR Radio, your station for news.
1: James McCarthy reporting. For up-to-the-minute reports, stay tuned to this station. Now, the news. Well, President Eisenhower was forced to cancel his trip back east today due to that young lady by the name of Brenda. That story from Sanford Marshall in New York.
0: The East Coast is in the throes of a tropical storm. Waterlogged New Yorkers went to their phones this morning to discover why and heard this.
1: Tropical Storm Brenda, causing heavy rains, high winds, and high tides until early afternoon with partial clearing and diminishing winds and subsiding tides later this afternoon.
0: Yes, Tropical Storm Brenda was moving up the east coast at about 35 miles an hour, but she is losing her tropical characteristics. She is now just a windy, wet storm, but she'll be spreading that rain, rough wind, and high tides for the next 12 to 38 hours. This is Sanford Marshall in New York. Now back to James McCarthy... In Washington.
1: And we'll have more news in a moment. On the political scene, pressure is due from both sides of the congressional fence when it reconvenes next month, but the Democrats have made it known today there'll be no stalling around about it. Ed Semprini reports from Kennedy Headquarters, Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Running mates Senators John F. Kennedy and Lyndon B. Johnson today singled out medical care for the aged, housing, aid to education, and mutual appropriations as the key issues on the legislative calendar for the forthcoming session of Congress. The Democratic teammates met newsmen at Hyannis Fort together for the first time since the nomination's in Los Angeles. Johnson attacked the administration for what he called its lack of foreign policy, defense, and new ideas. Regarding the GOP convention, Johnson said... The big difference between 1860 and 1960 for them is Lincoln. This is Ed Semprini reporting from WOCB, Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Now back to James McCarthy in Washington. Well, America, in case you're lolling around the house right about now and thinking how nice and calm it is, here's something that should shake you out of your doldrums. The Quiet War is back on in Korea. At last reports, a South Korean destroyer escort tangled with a commie North Korean gunboat four miles at sea today and sent the rocks right down, uh, sent the reds, we should say, right down to the bottom. In a naval gunfight, which lasted about five minutes, the rock craft en- gave the, engaged the enemy in what is the first confirmed battle and the first sinking of a commie vessel since the 1953 armistice ending the Korean War. Shortly after the destroyer sent the gunboat to the bottom, a spray of three communist torpedo boats appeared on a retaliation mission. No reports on that action, though. That's the news to now. James McCarthy, reporting.